Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Joe Aletto, and I'm the production manager of SALT, a global thought leadership forum and networking platform encompassing finance, technology, and politics. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. Just as we do at our global SALT events, we aim to both empower big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts. We are excited today to welcome Dr. Vivek Murthy to SALT Talks. Dr. Murthy served as the 19th Surgeon General of the United States from December 2014 to April 2017. As America's doctor, he called the nation's attention to critical public health issues, including the opioid crisis, e-cigarettes, and emotional health and well-being. As the Vice Admiral of the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps, he oversaw a uniformed service of 6,600 officers dedicated to safeguarding the health of the nation. Prior to serving in government, he conducted research on vaccine development and clinical trial participation and founded several organizations focused on HIV AIDS education, rural health, physical uh, physician advocacy rather, and clinical trial optimization. He received his bachelor's degree from Harvard and his MD and MBA degrees from Yale. He completed his internal medicine residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, where he later joined the faculty. If you have any questions for Dr. Murthy during today's talk, please enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And now we'll turn it over to Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, as well as the chairman of SALT to conduct today's interview. Uh, doctor, it's great to have you on. It's a big honor for us. Uh, I sort of start these interviews the same way, sort of my traditional uh, question. Uh, there's something about you that we cannot learn on Wikipedia or from your professional service, public service, et cetera. So tell us something about yourself that led to you to where you are today that we cannot learn on Wikipedia. Mm. Well, um, there are a couple, well, a couple things I'd mentioned. Uh, the first and foremost thing that led me here that isn't on my resume in any way, shape, or form are my parents and my sister. You know, I was uh, brought up in an immigrant family. My parents traveled to the United States from India uh, many years ago, and I was raised in Miami, Florida. We didn't have a whole lot in the way of resources or connections when we came here. Uh, there were, for a long time, things were pretty tight. We had to be careful how much we spent at the grocery store. We had to be mindful of... Uh, just how we lived our life. And, um, and I tell you, as a kid, it was scary at times, I'll tell you that. But what I gained from my parents over those years were a core set of values that really st have stuck with me throughout my life. A value for hard work, a value for people and community and investing in others, and a value for service, of giving back to uh, those who have helped you and even those who haven't, recognizing you could be in tough circumstances one day yourself. You know, my parents did that not by giving me a book and telling me memorize these three lessons and live by them, but they taught those lessons to me by living their life that way. And so they are the most uh, important uh, reason that I'm here today. And, uh, and that's what I'd, really, I'd want to share with you today. Well, that's an amazing tribute to your parents, doctor. Are they still alive? Yeah, I'm grateful they're still, uh, still with me. In fact, they're probably about 20 feet away from me right now because during this quarantine, uh, my wife and our two small kids and I have been uh, in Miami, which is where I grew up. My parents still are. And so we've been living the extended family life. And uh, oh, it's been chaotic, but wonderful. 
All right, so make sure you tell your mom that I live two miles from my mom and I've been doing her grocery shopping for the last six months, okay? I just want to make sure your mom knows that, okay? I want to, win, I want to, win, I want to win some points with her before we, we continue in the interview. She'll but, say you're uh, a good son. <laughs> well, I, I hope so. I'm trying, you know. It's a, I haven't been perfect, but I'm certainly trying. Uh, earlier in the summer, I purchased a book uh, titled uh, together, the healing power of the human condition in a sometimes lonely world. And I got to tell you, it's an amazing book, very, very thoughtful book. And I think you are making the connection, which all of us need to make about the body and the mind and, and how we handle stress and connect with each other and how it helps us uh, physiologically as well as our, our mental health. Uh, and so I, uh, kudos to you. And obviously the book was very well-timed given the fact that all of us are uh, in some level of home, home confinement. And I'm just wondering about when you decided to write that book, uh, why you decided to pick that genre, which I think is a fascinating genre. And uh, what could we tell somebody here on this Salt Talk that could tease them to get them to go out and buy the book, <laughs> which I'm strongly recommending that they do. Well, well, thank you, Anthony. And uh, this is not the book I thought I would write, to be honest with you. Um, it's not the topic I thought I would focus on before I was Surgeon General. But what happened to me, and then Anthony, is I began my, my time as Surgeon General on a listening tour, just traveling around the country, asking people you know, how I could help and trying to understand a bit about what was going on in their lives. And what I heard were some stories that wouldn't surprise you, stories of you know, opioid addiction, uh, of alcohol, uh, used disorders. I heard stories about violence in communities, about parents who were worried about their kids uh, you know, being depressed and anxious. I heard a lot of stories like that, but I also heard these stories I didn't expect, which were through throughout so many of these tales of chronic disease, uh, were these threads of loneliness, where people would often say to me, not, hi, I'm Vivek, I'm lonely, or hi, I'm Anthony, I'm lonely. They would say things like this. They would say, you know, I feel like I have to deal with all of these uh, difficulties and burdens on my own. Or I feel if I disappeared tomorrow, nobody would even care. Or I feel invisible. And hearing that again and again, not just from people who are older and living alone, but also from college students on college campuses, from uh, members of Congress, from CEOs, from people across the country, I realized there was something deeper happening here. And as I delved more into the, the subject, I realized that um, there was a lot of research on loneliness that told us that it was more than just a bad feeling but that it increased our risk for heart disease, for premature death, as well as for depression you know, and anxiety. But it also affects our performance in school and in the workplace and our ability to dialogue with each other. So if you're looking at the world today, if you pick up a newspaper or if you go online to any news site and you scan through the topics that are being reported on, I guarantee you that you will find subjects uh, that ultimately are driven in some way by loneliness and disconnection, whether that's political polarization or challenges that our kids are facing in school or the litany of chronic illnesses uh, that we're struggling with. Um, so I know it's not a typical subject for a Surgeon General to talk about. It's not tobacco, it's not physical activity, it's not the opioid uh, crisis, all of which I've worked on. But it is, I think, a root cause issue that we have to address if we wanna build stronger, healthier lives and a stronger, healthier society. So in, in addition, Doc, to the loneliness factor, what are some of the other things that you're worried about in terms of the public health? Not, not. We'll get to the pandemic in a second. I'm, I'm more talking about the ethereal aspects of our 
our health and our mental well-being. Uh, and what did you learn on that listening tour that you went on? Well, what I learned is that a lot of people are worried about their health and they're worried about the health of their families. And it's coming from a few different uh, perspectives. One is people are worried that if they get sick, they won't be able to get good care, either because they can't afford it, because they don't have insurance, um, or because the healthcare system itself is not built for them. And I would hear this particularly from minority groups who felt like, you know, who had real trust issues, you know, with the system. But I also heard from many people who were worried that the fundamental building blocks of health itself were often missing. Like when I think now about what is it that contributes to so much of the illness that I saw as a doctor, you know, over those years, it's a few fundamental building blocks. It's the food we eat. It's whether or not we get good rest. It's physical activity. Do we get it or not? And it's social connection in our life as well. And if you think about it, as a doctor who went to medical school and residency and then worked for many years, I didn't learn a whole lot at all about how to optimize those building blocks in people's lives. I learned how to treat illness once it came about. But I think there are many people in this country who recognize that they'd much rather prevent a case of diabetes and get it and then deal with it. The challenge is society doesn't seem to be set up to really do that for us. So if we want to truly build Anthony, a healthier, stronger society. What we've got to do is focus on those four building blocks and ask ourselves, how do we not only inform people about how to live a healthy life, but how do we actually enable them to do that? How do we make healthy food actually cheaper and more accessible? Like how do we make a physical activity more uh, part of our lives at work, in school, and in our neighborhoods? And how do we facilitate and strengthen social connection at a time where work and other priorities have overtaken our relationships. And even though we all value people, we often find that our relationships and those we love are pushed increasingly to the side uh, as second, third, and fourth order priorities. You mentioned something uh, that you call the social recession. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us what that means, the social recession. Well, I, I was thinking about that in the context of what's happening right now, uh, because you know, in the context of even before COVID-19 arrived on the scene, we were struggling with very high levels of loneliness. If you look at the United States and data from 2018, this is actually the more conservative data. I don't mean that politically, I mean methodologically. Those numbers put loneliness at about 22% of adults, you know, in the population who are struggling, struggling with loneliness. The real number is undoubtedly higher, but there are many surveys that have actually put that number closer to 50%. And some surveys, including a survey from Cigna, which have shown that the numbers are actually trending the wrong way, that they're increasing. They just put this in context. Even if you take the lower number, 22% of adults struggle with loneliness, that's more than the number of adults who have diabetes. It's more than the number of adults who smoke. And so we were struggling with a lot of loneliness before. And then comes COVID-19, right? And all of a sudden, at a time of extraordinary stress and uncertainty, a time, by the way, when we when we typically reach out to people to help deal with that stress, we find ourselves having to physically separate from one another and we can't connect the way we were used to. And that I think for many people has deepened their loneliness. So when I think about a social recession, I think about a period of time marked by deepening disconnection and loneliness. And if you understand the health uh, and economic and political consequences of loneliness and you recognize the consequences of a social recession, the price that we will pay, is just as important and comparable, I believe, to the economic headwinds that we're facing as a result of this pandemic. Uh, one last question before we get into the pandemic, because uh, I think we would both agree to this, that loneliness 
uh, people are afraid to admit that they're lonely. Uh, they have a self-consciousness about it. It makes them feel like, well, something reflects poorly on them if they're not surrounded by people. And we also get that from social media. There's pressure on us from social media. We see people, uh, uh, trust me, my kids are always taking the pictures stuff with the best lighting and they're trying to frame it out. And in the immortal words of my daughter, Amelia, uh, it, it's either real life or social media. I choose social media, you know, I mean, and it, it, it's, it, you know, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of truth in that. So what ends up happening is if we feel lonely, we can't admit to it. And so therefore, there's a little bit of a stigma. So how do we break that down? What do you suggest people do? Well, that stigma is real. And, and I'll tell you that not only did I hear that, the people's stories around the country, but I felt it myself because, you know, I am someone who's also struggled with loneliness a lot over my life, particularly when I was a child, uh, you know, in elementary school where the scariest part of the day for me was lunchtime, you know, going into that cafeteria, wondering if I was sure. going to be alone. And at that time, I thought I was the only one who was experiencing that. And that's the real challenge with loneliness is we look around us and we think I'm the only one who's struggling here. Everyone else seems to have wonderful lives, especially if you look at their social media feeds. Uh, but the reality is actually quite different. We know now, based on real data, that people are, in fact, all around us struggling with loneliness. But there's another reason, actually, we don't admit it. Because in our society, we tend to live in an in a extroverted society where engaging and socializing, especially in large uh, gatherings, has a premium to it. It says that we're, you know, we're popular, we're desirable, we're attractive, we're interesting. And so I think the, the real challenge here is how to admit to being alone in a society that always values uh, being surrounded by others. Um, and so when I think about what's driving loneliness uh, today, uh, whether it's for, you know, for young people like Amelia, uh, or whether it's for you know, people of our generation or people older than us, I think there are a few key factors you have to recognize. One is we're more mobile than we ever used to be, which is great, but it often means that we move away from communities that we've grown up with and come to know. The second factor is uh, our technology, you know, as far technology, I think is an extraordinary tool. I say that as somebody who built a technology company who is a big fan of what tech can do for us. But I think how we use it is what makes a difference between whether we deepen our connections or dilute our connections. And I think that the way in which we use social media now is predominantly uh, geared, uh, you know, toward ultimately hurting, I think, our social connection because we spend so much time in front of screens. We crowd out our time with people in person. And we also bring technology into our interaction such that it distracts us when we're talking uh, to other people. But for young people in particular, um, and I think about my kids you know, a lot in this context and worry about their future, I think that social media also undermines their self-esteem because it's constantly telling them that they're not enough, right? You're looking at other people's perfect lives, thinking you're not good enough, you're not good looking enough, you're not popular enough, you're not thin enough, you're not buff enough, you know, you're, not, you're not whatever it is. And so when you constantly feel like you're not enough, you approach just so, just so you know, yeah. Doc, Joe Aletto met every one of those criteria. He's thin <laughs> enough. He's buff enough. I mean, I just want to make sure there's three of us on this call, but, but Joe has made, made the criteria. But go, keep going, Doc. I just wanted to make sure you knew that. Well, sadly, not all of us can be Joe. So, <laughs> but as we continue to work toward that, I think many, many people in society now, young people in particular, walk around just feeling like they're inadequate. And if you take that sense of inadequacy, to your interactions with other people, what you find yourself doing instead of focusing on being yourself and on just truly being present and listening to them, you're constantly thinking about how you're coming across. You're constantly trying to orchestrate and work the conversation and say the right things to you, the other person thinks of you in a positive way. 
And when we're not ourselves, we don't connect as deeply and as strongly. So if we think about all this together, we realize that loneliness didn't come about yesterday. It didn't start with this pandemic. It's been brewing for a long time. And if we want to address it, we've got to start with recognizing that all of us at some point in our lives have struggled with it and there's nothing to be ashamed of. And this is the last point I'll make about this, Anthony, in terms of why people shouldn't be ashamed of it. Because let me ask you this, are you ashamed of being hungry or thirsty? Like none of us are, right? We know that everybody feels hungry or thirsty at some point. We should think about loneliness as the same type of thing. It's a signal very, that our body very good point. when we're lacking something we need for survival. It's, a, it's something we've evolved to do because when we were a hunter-gatherers thousands of years ago, our survival depended on being in trusted relationships. And when we were separated from our tribe, it increased our, our, our vigilance. It, it pushed our focus inward because we were worried about safety. Um, and you know, it increased our overall stress level. If you transport that to 2020, Anthony, to the modern day, what you find is that our circumstances are different, but our nervous systems are the same. And so we can think about loneliness not only as a signal that tells us we need more connection, but also as a source of stress, which in the short term can be beneficial, it can motivate us to pick up the phone and call a friend or get in the car and go and visit a relative. But in the long term, that stress has powerful and negative effects on our body, leading to physical uh, and mental illness. Well, I think, I think it's very well said. I think we have to continue to have this conversation because uh, a lot of our illnesses of the mind are just that, they're illnesses. If I told you I had clogged arteries, God forbid, you'd put me on some medicine and help me get or exercise or whatever, something wrong with my knee, we would take care of it. But when we have issues related to our mind, we are trapped somehow. We feel like there's a social stigma there uh, which really doesn't need to be. And so I, I really do appreciate all you're doing uh, to make a difference in that area because hopefully it'll lead people to just to relax a little and uh, and be themselves and enjoy the authenticity of who they are. There were some in the White House when I was there, Doc, that wanted me to care a little bit more about what other people thought of me. But, you know, what can I say, you know? You know, you know, you know just, it was dinner time training at the Scaramucci House just let me to be who I am. What can I tell you, All right? Well, listen, I'll, I'll just say, last thing on that, you said something really important there, which is, you know, being ourselves is not always easy, right, in the modern day world. And one of the greatest gifts that you can give your children is to give them the confidence uh, that they can show up as who they are and that what matters most is not Amen. the approval of other people, uh, but it's whether or not they're living uh, up to their highest version of who they can be. Are they living up to their their values. Look, look, I wrote this book not because I wanted people to be depressed about how common loneliness was, but I wanted two things to happen. One is for people to recognize that they weren't alone if they were lonely. But the second thing is I wanted them to recognize that our social connections, our relationships with one another, are one of the most powerful resources we have for healing, for strengthening ourselves, for enhancing how we show up in the world, whether it's at school or work. And if I told you, Anthony, that I had a pill that could dramatically reduce your risk of heart disease and mental illness, and that could you know, boost your performance and could even you know, enable you to dialogue better with people on you know, the other side of the aisle and everything. I mean, I'd do really well you know, if I sold that drug. People would be snapping it right up. The truth is we have that power within us in the form of relationships. And what I want and my fervent hope for not just the United States, but for the entire world is that we can recognize once again that if we put people at the center of our lives. If we truly prioritize people in terms of where we spend our time, attention, and energy, if we design our curricula in schools and our workplaces in ways that strengthen human connection, 
then we can not only come out healthier and stronger, but we can have people and our children can be much more fulfilled and happy than many of them are right now. Well, I think it's very, I think it's very well said. I'm glad that you, you took another moment to reemphasize that for everybody. We get a lot of young people on this call, Doc, and so uh, I hope you guys are listening out there. Let me, let me switch gears, talk a little bit about the pandemic, and then I'm going to turn it over to Joe because we've got a ton of questions uh, piling up in the queue. But I want to talk specifically about the disease for a second, uh, COVID-19. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about this disease. We were treating it differently in March and April than we're treating it today. So tell our listeners a little bit about that, if you don't mind. And then uh, tell us a little about these long haulers. What's your opinion there? Uh, and what is the long-term prospects for them, frankly, uh, in terms of their quality of life? Well, it's a great question, Anthony. I mean, this has been such a journey of discovery, a painful journey of discovery as we've learned more about COVID-19 and have understood not just how it's affecting us here in the U.S., but have seen what's happening in other countries. And uh, my hope is that we can continue to learn uh, from what's happening you know, outside of our borders. But where we are right now is that we have, unfortunately, the United States reached a, a very difficult point where we've lost over 200,000 lives. We have nearly 7 million people uh, who are infected. Uh, you know, with, uh, with COVID-19. And those are almost certainly dramatic underestimates in terms of the real numbers. Uh, we know what hurts mo the most though, Anthony, is it didn't have to be this way, is that we had opportunities and still do have opportunities to curb the spread of COVID-19. Is there a scenario where we could have prevented anyone from getting sick or dying? I don't think so. I think this was un uh, inevitably gonna affect some people's lives. But what has happened is it has spread on such a scale. I think that has, um, that it has just caused so much more damage and fear and anxiety and has led to economic pain in terms of prolonged shutdowns and educational uh, you know, you know, terrible impacts in terms of school closures that didn't necessarily have to be as prolonged as they were. Um, it is not too late though uh, to change that. You know, I do think we know enough about how this virus spreads to put in place measures that can reduce uh, spread. For example, we now know that masks are actually quite effective Unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there about, about masks. Unfortunately, we're not hearing consistent messages uh, from, uh, from our leaders in the country as well, which is unfortunate. But, but we do know that masks work. We know that distancing works. And if we, that, the fact that we still have a lot of COVID does not mean that we can never resume our way of life. We can, there are safe ways for us to educate our kids and to resume certain types of work. Um, we just have to have the coordination and the courage to have a clear plan and actually implement it. Um, so all this to say that, you know, the COVID is still an unfolding story. And my hope, despite the challenges we've had, is that we will muster a more science-driven uh, and effective approach and that we'll communicate honestly and openly with people along the way. One of the things we have learned, though, about COVID, which is really interesting and unfortunate, is that there are some people who have symptoms for a prolonged period of time. And you know, these are colloquially sometimes referred to as long haulers. So people whose symptoms don't go away in the first couple of weeks, but actually may last for many, many months. And those could be symptoms of fatigue. Uh, they could be general aches and pains. Um, there could be you know, a mental fog that some of them have described uh, that they experience. And we don't know enough to really know how commonly this occurs or if it ultimately will peter out at some point or if it will be something that will be with people for years. It's still something we have to understand. 
Uh, and, and that's why as we go through pandemics like this, investing in science and discovery and collaboration is so important. I mean, we, if we had learned uh, from what was happening in Europe and in Asia and actually implemented those lessons when COVID got to the US, we actually would have been much better off in terms of protecting our schools, in terms of protecting workplaces and ultimately protecting people's lives. So you, you, know, you, you, you mentioned this brain fog. I just wanna take one more question on this. There was an article this week, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, talking about the blood vessels in the heart and that there's some issues there. Uh, is that permanent damage you think, Doc, or is it just something that we don't know? Unfortunately, we don't know. And there are two, two uh, sort of cardiovascular complications, I think, that we have seen. One is uh, myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle itself. Uh, interestingly and somewhat disturbingly, that's something we've seen in young people as well, uh, including in, in young athletes. There was an article published in the Journal of the Medical Association, uh, American Medical Association, JAMA Cardiology, recently, which it was a small study looking at... Uh, at a population of student athletes and found that both symptomatic and asymptomatic, people who didn't have any symptoms, uh, people who had COVID-19, that they both seem to have evidence of inflammation in their heart. Now, is this consequential? Is it gonna cause long-term problems? We don't exactly know. But the other challenge that we found on a cardiovascular level is that many people with COVID-19 seem to develop blood clots in the hospital. These are people who tend to be severely ill. Um, and that those clots have been noticed even when they've been on blood thinners. So what is it about COVID-19, the inflammation it creates, it seems to generate what's called a prothrombotic state or a state where we're more prone to developing clots, again, is, is also unclear. But one thing is clear. The more we learn about COVID, the more we learn about how many organ systems are actually affected. You know, in the beginning, we thought this was just about the lungs. And then we realized actually it can hit the nervous system, it can hit the cardiovascular system, and it can affect your kidneys. And one by one, we start to realize this virus is a lot more complicated. That's why it, it's important to be cautious. It's why we don't want to just say, okay, let's just ret let this virus run like wildfire through the population, because not only will we lose many lives, and we've already seen that, but we will have many people who survive the virus, but may have complications that they may live with for months and possibly for years. Well, I think it's a brilliant exposition of what is going on. Uh, we've got a ton of questions and we'd like to keep this thing tight. So I've got to turn it over to the, the very buff and in shape Joe Aletto. Go ahead, Joseph. Only because the gym's open three weeks ago, but I have my mask on the entire time, I promise. By the way, Joe, as an aside, I have to start complimenting John Darcy. Otherwise, you know, we could have a, a you know, otherwise, we could have it's a be me and Rachel. Rachel. <laughs> yeah, I got I got I got I got a boost after after with the that this is our other co-host doc. After what you said about loneliness and stuff like that, I got to go pick this guy up. Okay, when I, when when I leave this call, I'm going to FaceTime him and send him love. But go ahead, Joe. Yeah, I got to do good. that now. I feel feel guilty about all my uh, uh tweaking of him. <laughs> so turning back to um to social media just briefly. Um I want to ask you know, social media under media companies are under intense scrutiny for misinformation. And um, I went back through your tweets, and you you wrote out if social media companies can't police misinformation, they should shut down their platforms. Um, I thought you know that's fantastic, and I wanted you to sort of elaborate on that. And considering the amount of people who make important decisions based on what they read, potentially in an echo chamber on their social media feeds you know, why aren't we approaching social media regulation as a public health issue? 
Yeah, well, Joe, the reason that, that um, you know, I believe this is so important is because so much of the misinformation people are getting is coming through social media and it has real consequences. You know, this is not a, a, a laughing matter. This is the kind of thing that makes people decide not to take vaccines that could save their lives and protect their children. This is the kind of uh, misinformation that, allow, that sends people to take medications that are unproven uh, and they actually cause harm, but they're misled to think somehow they'll be helpful. And we've seen that with COVID-19. Uh, and so the real question is whose responsibility is it? And what I think is problematic is when companies, social media companies say, you know, my job is just to create the platform. It's up to people to use it the way they do. Uh, that sounds good and fine. And that might even be, uh, you know, in accordance with the letter of the law. But there's a higher responsibility that we all have to each other to create and build products and services that ultimately advance humanity and don't uh, cause harm. And I think that in that, in the vein, uh, you know, of, of taking responsibility, I think that tech, social media technology companies have a responsibility to police themselves. And if they can't police the harmful effects and mitigate the harmful effects uh, that they are having on the population at large, then we have to seriously ask, is it, is, is it okay for them to continue to function in the way that they're functioning? Like we wouldn't do this. Like you wouldn't, for example, put a drug out onto the market and say, you know, it seems to help people. It's killing a whole lot of people, but it seems to help a few people. So maybe we should just keep it up there and just, you know, it's up to everyone to just make up their own minds about whether they want to use it or not and figure out whether the data is real or not. We wouldn't do that because that doesn't make sense because we know it's actually exceedingly difficult for somebody to figure out whether a medication is safe or effective on their own. They need trusted sources to look at the data, to parse the science, et cetera. Similarly, it's very hard these days for people to figure out on social media what true and what's not. Uh, things are so often not labeled. If they are labeled as false, it's well after the fact. And the, the bar that many of these organizations have for taking action uh, is often way, way too high. Um, so that's where my concern comes from. I'm, I'm not thinking about anything other than first and foremost, what is going to help protect the health and well-being of people around the country? And right now, social media has not made a good case uh, that it's on the side of helping uh, reduce pain, suffering, and improve health. Yeah, and continuing on from there, I mean, talking about the forthcoming vaccine, which hopefully will be, you know, have some, we'll have some information on the efficacy of it by the end of the year, maybe next year, and uh, did widespread distribution by the summer at, at best is what, you know, Dr. Fauci is advising us. But, you know, relating to social media, so we don't have to dive into any rhetoric coming from the, you know, the White House, you know, what are people going to do who are reading things online that you know vaccines aren't safe or maybe COVID is, will be you know not as as rigorous the vaccine for COVID won't be as rigorous governor cuomo just came out today saying that new york state is going to have its own review process for for vaccines so all of these all these conflicting messages doesn't don't really instill confidence in someone who might even be looking at a vaccine for the first time in their life so i'm curious to see what your your take is on how you would solve for that yeah, it's, it's the right question, Joe, because it's on everyone's minds, and especially as these clinical trials for the vaccines advance. You know, I think we're all hoping that we'll get a good vaccine uh, trial result soon, and one that can hopefully deliver a safe and effective vaccine into our hands so we can start saving lives. That's the hope, and everybody should be uh, in favor of that. Uh, you know, the challenge, and this is a bit of an unprecedented challenge that we're dealing with, uh, Joe, is that is not that, you know, there are some people who don't believe in vaccines. That's been true for many years. But it's always been a very small percentage of the population. It seems a lot bigger than it is, but it's actually quite small. 
the part of the challenge that's unprecedented is we've never been in a situation where there was so much distrust of what was coming out of the FDA and the administration. Because in Republican and Dem Democratic administrations in the past, when we had major outbreaks or pandemics, both Republican and Democratic presidents often came together around the science and they spoke with one voice with, you know, in terms of scientists and political leaders, all speaking to what people needed to do. And they had a process that had integrity when it came to evaluating a vaccine. And that's really essential. And I think they did that because they knew what was at stake. It wasn't just a current vaccine and illness, but they knew that if you, if you compromised faith in a vaccine, that it would impact you for years to come for future vaccines as well. And what we've unfortunately run into is a situation where because of, uh, I think, a, a division, if you will, between what scientists are saying and what political leadership and the administration is saying on a variety of things, not just vaccines, but on masks, on hydroxychloroquine, on a range of other issues related to COVID, people have started to wonder who's really telling the truth. And if the administration says the scientists are telling, telling us that we should trust this vaccine, is that actually what the scientists are saying? Um, I think that unfortunately for all those reasons, you see uh, what the Kaiser Family Foundation demonstrated a few weeks ago in its poll, which is that 54% of Americans say that if a vaccine was available today for COVID-19, they would not take it. I mean, that is staggering if you think about it, because this is a pandemic that's turned all our lives upside down. We should all want a vaccine, but that speaks to how deep the mistrust is. And so if we want to correct that, we want to instill faith, we've got to do a couple of things. Number one, the FDA has to lay out clear standards for what constitutes effectiveness and safety. And the second thing they have to do is ensure that we will hear from independent scientists on the advisory board, as well as from the staff scientists at FDA, hear directly from them about what their take on the data is. And third, they've got to make the data actually available to the public so that scientists in the community can look at it, can assess it, and can opine on it. Without those bars being met, it's going to be very hard for people to trust an administration that has repeatedly, unfortunately, shown a callous disregard for science. Yeah, and I want to just, as we're, as we're winding down, talk about the the next three months, you know, going into 2021, what a potential post-COVID world is going to look like. You know, we just hit a staggering milestone of 200,000 people who have passed as a result of, of COVID-19 and complications thereof. There's some projections that'll take us now up to 400,000. You know, what does, what does the rest of the year look like? What does the, the start of the new year look like? And what sort of mitigation efforts would a, you know, a Biden presidency bring in to restore faith in the FDA, restore faith in the NIH, the CDC, and how do we re-educate the American population about what the, what the facts are behind COVID-19 and the science below it? Yeah, you know, this is a difficult time and the projections show that unless we take a different tact here to get this virus under control, we may lose up to another 178,000 lives by January 1st. This is according to the University of Washington Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Those are staggering numbers. And, but I do think that we can do things differently. And overall, as sobering as the numbers are, I actually am optimistic that we can overcome COVID-19 because we actually know what to do. We have extraordinary scientists. We have learned a tremendous amount. We have amazing civil servants who are standing at the ready. Uh, and what, we're, what we just need is coordinated, clear leadership to help execute. Uh, and, and to make the plans that are necessary. So, you know, I think what a Biden administration um, would hopefully do is, 
is to number one, recognize that you've got to step in here with strong leadership. And what does strong leadership do? Well, strong leaders lead by example, right? Ultimately, they step up and fill gaps. They take responsibility and they deliver results. And that's going to be more important now than ever. I think the second thing that a new administration would have to do is to rebuild trust. And the way that you rebuild trust is to ensure that you are letting science guide your decisions, but that you're also communicating openly and honestly with the public about where we are, where we need to go, and how we're going to get there. Part of that is allowing scientists to speak directly uh, to the public. Um, and you don't do that if you've got, I mean, you don't uh, avoid letting scientists talk to the public unless you're worried about what they're going to say or not planning to follow their guidance. But again, we've got to speak with one voice. And the, let's say the third thing that a new administration would need to do. Uh, and which I know Vice President Biden has spoken extensively about, is to lay out clear plans on our priority issues. Those being, how do we distribute a vaccine fairly and quickly? How do we ensure that we close the gap uh, on testing where we still have shortages? How do we put forth not just a plan, but the resources to open our schools? How do we provide the economic support for people who are hurting so they won't have to find ways to go back to work while putting themselves at risk and they can in fact prioritize their health? And ultimately, how do we put forward clear guidance for families, for workplaces, for states, and for schools so people know what to do to keep themselves and their communities safe? All of this is going to require good, strong partnerships. It's going to require you know, a federal government that's willing to step up and work closely with states and communities and organizations. That doesn't mean the federal government has to do everything. But what it means is that the federal government needs to have the courage to lead and not step back and allow others to take responsibility when things fall through. Because that is the definition of a leader. You step up to fill the gaps. Um, look, ultimately, I think we can do this. The reason I think we can do this is because we have overcome great challenges in the past. We have dealt with major outbreaks. We have distributed vaccines uh, to millions and millions in the population. We have done extraordinary things in public health. Have we done something at this scale and with the and addressed a situation that was this urgent in the last century? No. So this will take actually America coming together uh, in an extraordinary way. And so I, I lastly want to say this, which is as important as everything I've mentioned is in terms of what government should do and what states should do. This, there is no way that we will overcome COVID-19 if as individuals, we also don't step up to not only do the right thing in terms of safety, but to support one another. You know, what is, one thing that's given me heart and hope during this time has just been to see how many people have been stepping up in communities to support their neighbors, to look out for their family and friends and loved ones, to support strangers. Uh, I walk around my neighborhood here in Miami and I see the signs that neighbors have put out thanking nurses and doctors and grocery store workers for putting themselves on the line so that others uh, can be safe and taken care of. And there's something deep within each of us, a spirit of common concern and decency and compassion that I saw when I was Surgeon General, as I had the privilege to visit communities across the country. That is ultimately what will sustain us during these difficult times. And I want us to recognize that because it can be easy to feel like you're powerless during a time like this because you can't create a vaccine, you can't make a medicine. But I want us to know that the compassion, kindness, and love that we wield, that we have inside of us as part of our birthright, that that is one of the most powerful medicines we have. I say that as somebody who's written many prescriptions for medicines over the years, but there's nothing more powerful than what love and compassion can do to help us heal and to make us strong during difficult times. That's, you know, that's fantastic. It almost feels like the, the problem that we're living through, how, however terrible, could actually be a solution to 
the discord we're having between political parties, between people now and coming out of this, we could see something of a, of a coming together and a solving of that. But um, I want to thank you so much for coming on Salt Talks. Anthony, do you have any, any final words? Oh, Doc, I appreciate it. I brought my mask for everybody. See that? So I'm wearing <laughs> it in your honor, sir. Okay. And I just hope that people will listen because uh, this will save people's lives. And if you love your parents and they have comorbidities, you want to wear the mask. Now, of course, you guys can't hear me through the mask, but I'm making the point visually, right? So yeah. let, let's keep it together. And I really appreciate your time today. Of course. Great uh, to be with you, Anthony. Hope, hope, hope to see you live at one of our events once we can get back uh, up and running. Thanks, Anthony. It's good to be with Thank you. And you. Joe, great to be with you and the team as well.